Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 238. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Kathleen Duffy. And Kathleen, as has become tradition on this show, as a new co-host, I'm going to be reading a few chapters for you to react to and discuss with me from a favorite book of mine entitled Don't Sweat the Small Stuff by Dr. Richard Carlson. The first chapter I'll be reading today is number 57, Become a Less Aggressive Driver. Where do you get the most uptight? If you're like most people, driving in traffic is probably high on your list. To look at most major freeways these days, you'd think you were on a racetrack instead of a roadway. There are three excellent reasons for becoming a less aggressive driver. First, when you are aggressive, you put yourself and everyone around you in extreme danger. Second, driving aggressively is extremely stressful. Your blood pressure goes up, your grip on the wheel tightens, your eyes are strained, and your thoughts are spinning out of control. Finally, you end up saving no time in getting where you want to go. Recently, I was driving south from Oakland to San Jose. Traffic was heavy, but moving. I noticed an extremely aggressive and angry driver weaving in and out of the lanes, speeding up and slowing down. Clearly, he was in a hurry. For the most part, I remained in the same lane for the entire 40-mile journey. I was listening to a new audio tape I had just purchased, and daydreaming along the way. I enjoyed the trip a great deal, because driving gives me a chance to be alone. As I was exiting off the freeway, the aggressive driver came up behind me and raced on by. Without realizing it, I had actually arrived in San Jose ahead of him. All of his weaving, rapid acceleration, and putting families at risk had earned him nothing except perhaps some high blood pressure and a great deal of wear and tear on his vehicle. On average, he and I had driven at the same speed. The same principle applies when you see drivers speeding past you so that they can beat you to the next stoplight. It simply doesn't pay to speed. This is especially true if you get a ticket and have to spend eight hours in traffic school. It will take you years of dangerous speeding to make up this time alone. When you make the conscious decision to become a less aggressive driver, you begin using your time in the car to relax. Try to see your driving not only as a way of getting you somewhere, but as a chance to breathe and to reflect. Rather than tensing your muscles, see if you can relax them instead. I even have a few audio tapes that are specifically geared toward muscular relaxation. Sometimes I pop one in and listen. By the time I reach my destination, I feel more relaxed than I did getting into the car. During the course of your lifetime, you're probably going to spend a great deal of time driving. You can spend those moments being frustrated, or you can use them wisely. If you do the latter, you'll be a more relaxed person. My first reaction as you started reading this chapter to me is how much it reminded me of a book that I love, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Within this book, the author makes an interesting critique of driving and what it means to be in a car in general, in the sense that there exists a certain kind of disconnect within a car. Whereas the author describes being on a motorcycle as an opportunity to realize one's awareness of all that's around them, those in cars, because they're in a pod of sorts, separated from everything around them, almost lose any kind of awareness. There certainly is a lot of stress to driving. No one can deny that. On the other hand, there's also the stress of the destination, where we worry in the process of where we're going, what's waiting for us, or how fast we have to be there, all that we might have to do and the stress that that brings. 
You and Carlson both get at the idea of what it means to be in a car, and they very much are these pods which isolate us. And it's interesting to me that we don't typically use that isolation for good when I think solitude, at least in healthy measure, is one of the most important aspects of being alive. It's a chance to really understand how you are operating. And although it isn't always pleasant to be alone with your thoughts, I think that stress can accumulate the less frequently you spend time with your thoughts. And so when we see aggressive drivers, I think that's a manifestation of a number of things. Perhaps they have demanding family members or bosses who absolutely insist that they have to get there at a certain time. And we spend so much time in traffic, I think it would be really helpful if the people in our lives understood that things happen and that journeys won't always be easy or timely. And you also pointed to the stress of the destination, and I think aggressive driving is a beautiful metaphor for the fact that many of us don't appreciate the journeys we're on until they're over or interrupted by something bleak or difficult. And I'm not saying that life is always going to be rosy, but I really admire Carlson's point that you can make a lot out of your time in a car. You and I are recording a podcast right now Plenty of people listen to and consider various feelings and stories while driving a car. And if you're not already doing it, I would encourage you to give it a shot. And lastly, you mentioned responsibility. And I think that's really essential, not only to remember that we are all taking various journeys, symbolic and otherwise, but that in our journeys, we're not doing it alone. And the mechanism of a car does imply, I think, to the brain and our overall perception that we are alone, which is ridiculous because traffic itself should remind us that there are many, many people who are taking parallel journeys, and there's something beautiful in that in my mind. And I would hope, as I think Carlson is alluding to, that people would approach driving or similar crowded spaces with more empathy than anger realizing that other people are just as interested in the destination as you are, and that you aren't more important than they are. And on that note, Kathleen, the next chapter is number 38, entitled, Tell Three People Today How Much You Love Them. Author Stephen Levine asks the question, if you had an hour to live and could only make one phone call, who would you call? What would you say? And why are you waiting? What a powerful message. Who knows what we are waiting for? Perhaps we want to believe we will live forever, or that someday we will get around to telling the people we love how much we love them. Whatever the reasons, most of us simply wait too long. As fate would have it, I'm writing this strategy on my grandmother's birthday. Later today, my father and I are driving out to visit her gravesite. She died about two years ago. Before she passed away, it became obvious how important it was to her to let her family know how much she loved us all. It was a good reminder that there is no good reason to wait. Now is the time to let people know how much you care. Ideally, you can tell someone in person or over the phone. I wonder how many people have been on the receiving end of a phone call where the caller says, I just called to tell you how much I love you. You may be surprised that almost nothing in the world means so much to a person. How would you like to receive the same message? If you're too shy to make a phone call, write a heartfelt letter instead. Either way, you may find that as you get used to it, letting people know how much you love them will become a regular part of your life. It probably won't shock you to know that, if it does, 
you'll probably begin receiving more love as a result. This is a chapter that I feel I can relate to on many levels, especially considering the family that I come from. Oftentimes, before I will leave the house or go to bed, my mother will say to me, I love you. Give me a hug in case I die in my sleep or I die on the road. And while this is a really morbid thought, it's true. You never know what could happen. Life is fleeting and opportunities are easy to miss. Similarly, my family will say I love you in what might seem like an obsessive amount when we leave the room after being with each other or greeting each other after even just a few moments apart. And while this may seem excessive, it's a practice that has emboldened me to feel confident in my ability to say I love you to those around me and to realize that what often seems like a scary or overly intimate thing to do can really be an everyday practice. That expressing and vocalizing our love for one another should not be something that is a rare occurrence or something saved for special occasions, but rather a part of our daily conversations. And that in reality, it's something that we all need to hear and that we all need to say. And that in both hearing and telling each other the love that we hold, we begin to approach each other in ways that ultimately improve both our relationship and our lives. In the first paragraph of that chapter, when Carlson mentions phone calls, my mind immediately goes to all of the people I know who hate phone calls. So I really appreciate that he mentions letters and I think implies other means towards the end of the chapter because the medium isn't necessarily the most important thing. I personally believe that some things are more powerfully conveyed depending on the medium you choose, but I do appreciate the notion behind this chapter that it's just important to let people know. And Kathleen, in talking about your family, you say that it might seem, to quote you, obsessive or excessive, but you also astutely point out that it's a practice. And for people who haven't practiced the very same, I believe, natural thing, it would seem foreign, alien, maybe even bizarre or crude, depending on one's cultural background or beliefs. But I think it's really important to let the people you know how you feel about them. Because, as Carlson ends the chapter, you are probably going to begin receiving more love as a result. And if you don't, perhaps those relationships should be reconsidered or improved. You may find out that you feel a certain way about people who don't feel all that connected to you. But I think in expressing love, we bring a certain truth to light. And that's ultimately, in my mind, something that's really healthy. And on a similar note, the third chapter today, number five, develop your compassion. Nothing helps us build our perspective more than developing compassion for others. Compassion is a sympathetic feeling. It involves the willingness to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to take the focus off yourself, and to imagine what it's like to be in someone else's predicament, and simultaneously to feel love for that person. It's the recognition that other people's problems, their pain and frustrations, are every bit as real as our own, often far worse. In recognizing this fact and trying to offer some assistance, we open our hearts and greatly enhance our sense of gratitude. Compassion is something you can develop with practice. It involves two things, intention and action. Intention simply means you remember to open your heart to others, to expand what and who matters, from yourself to other people. Action is simply the what you do about it. You might donate a little money or time or both on a regular basis to a cause near to your heart, 
or perhaps you'll offer a beautiful smile and genuine hello to the people you meet on the street. It's not so important what you do, just that you do something. As Mother Teresa reminds us, we cannot do great things on this earth. We can only do small things with great love. Compassion develops your sense of gratitude by taking your attention off all the little things that most of us have learned to take too seriously. When you take time, often, to reflect on the miracle of life, the miracle that you are even able to read this book, the gift of sight, of love, and all the rest, it can help remind you that many of the things that you think of as big stuff are really just small stuff that you are turning into big stuff. What I appreciate most about Dr. Carlson's chapter on compassion is the fact that he recognizes that compassion and passivity are not compatible on any level, but at the same time notices that the world is daunting and it's easy to become disillusioned and sink into our own worlds, that in the midst of the sadness of the world, it is easy to forget how much our compassion matters how much the little things we do for others matter. And this reminds me of a wonderful quote from the Talmud. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. And to me, it is in doing right by others, in recognizing the self and the others, that we both work to better the world and are reminded that the world is capable of being better that if we refuse to become apathetic, the world can only improve. I think that we find risk in compassion because we are afraid to become proximal to each other. We are afraid of recognizing ourselves in the other because it reveals weaknesses in ourselves that we're often afraid of. It reminds us that we're also struggling and have to confront problems in our own lives that maybe we're not equipped to do on our own. However, I think what is most important about the willingness to put ourselves in each other's shoes as Carlson states, is that divisions in all areas of our life begin to dissipate. We begin to realize that which divides us isn't so great after all. You're absolutely right that the world is daunting, and to your subsequent point, compassion in its own way is also daunting, and we seem to unlearn it in many cases as we grow older because there is a vulnerability there. And while you were talking, I was thinking about this culture in which we live that glorifies glamour, fame, wealth, often outward displays of invulnerability, if you will, or seeming immortality. We have plenty of people who are concerned with appearing youthful, almost as if they will never die. And tied into compassion is this idea that we are human. As Carlson mentions, we're all struggling. We're all working through our own battles and ideas. And it's certainly not a new thought. But amazingly, it's a thought and idea that seems to be left by the wayside when in my mind, it's a rather timeless phenomenon that should compel us to listen, to open up. And it's not that easy. And I'm not saying it is going to be at any point in human history. But I will say that the compassionate people in my life have made me more compassionate and I'm confident have made me a better person. And in my mind, there's no better reason than that this positive snowball effect that to be compassionate in a true and powerful way often encourages others to try the same. And I think it makes the work of compassion that much easier. And now, Kathleen, the final chapter, number 17. Surrender to the fact that life isn't fair. 
A friend of mine, in response to a conversation we were having about the injustices of life, asked me a question. Who said life was going to be fair, or that it was even meant to be fair? Her question was a good one. It reminded me of something I was taught as a youngster. Life isn't fair. It's a bummer, but it's absolutely true. Ironically, recognizing this sobering fact can be a very liberating insight. One of the mistakes many of us make is that we feel sorry for ourselves or for others, thinking that life should be fair or that someday it will be. It's not and it won't. When we make this mistake, we tend to spend a lot of time wallowing and or complaining about what's wrong with life. We commiserate with others, discussing the injustices of life. It's not fair, we complain, not realizing that, perhaps, it was never intended to be. One of the nice things about surrendering to the fact that life isn't fair is that it keeps us from feeling sorry for ourselves by encouraging us to do the very best we can with what we have. We know it's not life's job to make everything perfect. It's our own challenge. Surrendering to this fact also keeps us from feeling sorry for others because we are reminded that everyone is dealt a different hand and everyone has unique strengths and challenges. This insight has helped me to deal with the problems of raising two children, the difficult decisions I've had to make about who to help and who I can't help, as well as with my own personal struggles during those times that I have felt victimized or unfairly treated. It almost always wakes me up to reality and puts me back on track. The fact that life isn't fair doesn't mean we shouldn't do everything in our power to improve our own lives or the world as a whole. To the contrary, it suggests that we should. When we don't recognize or admit that life isn't fair, we tend to feel pity for others and for ourselves. Pity, of course, is a self-defeating emotion that does nothing for anyone except to make everyone feel worse than they already do. When we do recognize that life isn't fair, however, we feel compassion for others and for ourselves. And compassion is a heartfelt emotion that delivers loving kindness to everyone it touches. The next time you find yourself thinking about the injustices of the world, try reminding yourself of this very basic fact. You may be surprised that it can nudge you out of self-pity and into helpful action. I appreciate the distinction that Carlson makes between pity and compassion. Because as we discussed in the last chapter, compassion inspires us to act, whereas pity lets us sit around. And I think that is one of the most important points that Carlson alludes to throughout this chapter, that life isn't fair, but that we should be. That in our ability to recognize our own weakness because of the injustices of life and the weaknesses of others, that we can better understand our shared vulnerabilities. And because of that, we have a responsibility to care for each other, to improve life for each other as much as we can, and hope that others will do the same for us. And recognizing that life isn't inherently equal or right, it forces us to realize that we are not meant to be independent creatures, that we need each other to be successful and thrive in this world that is scary and hard and might throw us a curveball that it didn't throw our neighbor. However, in recognizing that, we experience the liberation that Carlson leads to, which is the liberation of community. The fact that because we weren't meant to exist on our own or for our own sake, we don't have to. We can ask others for help. We can help others without them asking us. We can choose to live for others because the conditions of our world force us to. If we ever hope to live lives that are joyful and happy and inspire that in others.
For me, one of the prominent ideas behind this chapter is that in this view, we might start to see hardship less as an arrow of cruel fate directed at us because we are the protagonist of our own story, and more as a dark tremor or something that happened upon us and by circumstance found its way to us. Because if you start to see the world as out to get you, logically, why would you want to help it? Why would you want to improve it? It would seem not only that the world isn't worth your time, but that you'd be improving something that hates you and wishes for your destruction. And I think most logical people would think about that and say, well, no, I don't care about this world, and might throw in some expletives for good measure. And I think that's why a lot of people are not only apathetic, but incredibly angry. And in a lot of ways, I would say rightfully so, because their circumstances are not only bleak, but they come from incredibly troubled history and acts of terrible atrocity and cruelty, the likes of which I could barely describe in language alone. But as more of us consider how unfair the world is, it's worth noting that as human beings who can perceive justice, fairness, morality, etc., we not only have the tools to observe it, but I'm quite confident the capacities to address it. To Carlson's point, maybe not entirely, ever, but gradually, and in a way that I think makes the future a bright place to move towards. And you had mentioned shared vulnerabilities. To me, that's one of the first steps in improving as a collective, as a community, recognizing that we've all gone through terrible things, perhaps not on the same scale, but that human hardship does shape you and does reveal something about how difficult the world is to navigate, to live within. But Kathleen, having read these chapters, all of which touch on, I would say, similar themes, what would you like the audience to consider after listening to this conversation? To me, each of these four chapters ask us to spend a little more time reflecting on ourselves, not in an individualistic sense, but rather as an individual in relation to others, within our families and friends, and the world at large. I think we fail to spend enough time reflecting on how our understandings of self affect our understandings of others. That in a refusal to look at ourselves critically and intimately, we fail to see others with the same level of intimacy. If we ever hope to truly connect to others, we have to connect to ourselves. If we never spend the time to consider what we see as shortcomings or failings or weaknesses, we develop a kind of blindness towards weakness and vulnerabilities in others, and in doing so, forget how to be compassionate. We become angry and disillusioned. We have no idea how to see ourselves within others. And that key element of compassion, of loving, is understanding that we create our own separation, that it is necessary to take the time to look into ourselves, to look at others, and to see with understanding and compassion to see in a way that is honest. You're absolutely right that these chapters do point to how we conceive of the self in a larger whole within a community. And for me, the chapter that felt the most meaningful was the first, about driving and how we navigate the world under this presumption, and I think this apt metaphor, that we exist within this self-protective bubble capable of taking us elsewhere in the world. I've been flipped off in traffic before in ways that I suspect people wouldn't do were we walking alongside one another. And while the masks we wear can be revelatory and even large enough to contain several passengers, 
I do think it's worth considering the mindset that cars or parallel circumstances put us into and to then consider how much time the average person might spend in a car over the course of their lives. Does this leave us feeling more disconnected and out of touch with one another? I think Carlson brings up some really interesting points that I'd love to come back to someday. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, even if joined by Dr. Carlson, and we'd really love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And I'm Kathleen Duffy. Go in peace and conversation.